minor prophets in this class just because uh, once you get off of one, you're, you're still thinking about it. And so I felt terrible today in uh, minor prophets because somebody's asking me a question, I'm replying to her, and I'm like, well, look at your... And I thought, she doesn't know Greek. You're like, or she does, but maybe, but maybe she doesn't have her Greek Bible with her, you know, something again. <sighs> okay, well, we got we, okay, we to back up here and try to walk through all this. So I apologize in advance if I do that to you. I'm like, come on, can't you read the... Of course you can't. That, that would be kind of why, you know, you know we're all learning. And, and it just shows... But what it does illustrate to you is this, and I'll say it in my Minor Prophets class, but I forewarn you in this class. When you deal with the Bible in detail, it's virtually impossible not to go to the original languages. It is. It's just, it's just very difficult to really do detailed analysis on a translation. Does that make sense to everybody? Do you see why, though? Because if you're trying to go down to the level of the word and of the phrase and of how it works together and what it communicates, if you have a translation, you're not really going down to the word and the phrase. You're going down to somebody's interpretation of the word and the phrase. Does that make sense? Because they're transferring it from one language to another. And it's okay... You know, it's not like you can't understand the Bible, but here's the, here's the difficulty. The more precision you need, the more you zoom in using like a microscope on the text, the more it's required for you to have the original. Does that make sense to everybody? And so in, in my classes, and I think in every professor's class, we're all trying to say, hey, look, you can figure out the general idea of the text for yourself. It's not hard. You just read it, and you kind of have the general notions in your mind. But... What brings out the beauty is the detail. Does that make sense? What brings out the glory is the fact that you never saw these nuances and these um, bits and pieces that make the Bible wonderful and glorious, and it brings out the force of the text. I've used the cooking metaphor with you guys already, I know. But it's the small things sometimes that you do when you cook. You know, just think, okay, when you marinate... Are you seasoned French fries, steak, whatever? What's the main thing? It's the meat, right? I mean, that's the main thing. But seasoning is small. It's really tiny. But it makes a big difference. The details of the text make all the difference in the world. But to get there, you've got to study the original languages. And what makes things easier is every, if everyone knew Greek and Hebrew, I could just say, hey, look at this, this, this. Okay, good, we're good, let's go. But you can't always do that. And sometimes I just get so excited as well as so rushed that I just want to, uh, you know, just do that to you all. And if I do that, my apologies. I'm not trying to be impatient with you. I'm just overzealous. It's like when Dr. Varn makes his class cry, you know, <laughs> in second year Greek. It's not because he's trying to be mean, okay? He's just excited. And so he gets in your face and says, tell it to me, tell it to me. And you're just like, ah. <laughs> and he's not trying to be mad at you. He just, he wants you to tell it to him. And, and, he, and he just screams in your face, you know, and you're like, whoa. <laughs> you know. And to make up for it, he sometimes pretends he's Yoda or whatever, and, and that helps too. So, uh, yeah. And that also just shows, personal note, why sometimes I don't like survey class. You see, the whole problem is if the beauty's in the details, then what do you have to do in survey class? You have to get into the details. But a survey class is inherently against what? Details. <laughs> oh. 
So, you know, it, it, it just becomes really funny, the, the way we have to play with survey. But if any of you are in my OT survey one class, <coughs> know this, I'm ahead of everybody <laughs> right now. So no one can criticize me. I don't think, I think Varner just cleared Genesis 2. I'm in Genesis 3. So <laughs> I'm coming out on top on this one. It's the first time ever. Like usually they're like, what chapter are you on? You're not going to make it. What are you doing? And I'm like, I can't, I can't go any faster this time. Ha. I'm, I'm number one this time. You know, <laughs> I'm 10 verses ahead of you. Finally. Okay. So these, these are the games we play in the Bible office. Like, what verse? 2, 10. 3, 1. Ha. 1. <laughs> Buy me Starbucks, you know. So, you know, we have fun together. Well, we, our goal today is to get through the rest of chapter 3. Yeah, we can do that. I mean, we're so close. We only have like, you know, yeah, 10, ten verses. <clears throat> and four. If we can do that, I'm a happy man. And if we can't do that, I'll still be joyful. Um, but I think we can do it. I think it's totally reasonable. And my, my kind of the overview is we're going to pick up pace for three, four, five, six, and then all pace is going to disappear when we hit seven. And we will go very slow, very, very, very methodically slow because seven is so critical as a definition that if you don't understand seven in its full context, we might as well just have not taken this class because nothing's going to make sense afterwards. And then after that, we can speed up for one chapter and then slow down for two chapters and then speed up a little bit and then really, 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 really slow down again at the very end. So that's kind of the schedule for the entire semester. And so we're going to try to pick it up a little bit now. Well, let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Lord, thank you for the joy of the saints, and thank you uh, for the fellowship we have with one another, and the fact that we could study your word and study it deeply. Help us not to be lazy when we go through the text, and, and just to be flippant, and just to breeze through it like it's just any other book. But give us the heart, give us the discipline, give us the strength and the perseverance to systematically, slowly, carefully, cautiously, thoughtfully, devotionally meditate, read, and study your word. And even now, as we are studying this great narrative of 2 Samuel, and we're thinking about you as king and your son and and how that all merges together and converges together. Help us, O oh God, to see the glory of your plan and how you so clearly define the way and prepare the way for him. Even thousands of years before your son came to earth, incarnate, thank you for how you've gloriously set up for his arrival in this text. So help us to see that now. Help us to see the wisdom of your plan. Help us to love you and, and understand the clarity of your decision-making. Um, give us that strength now. Let us encourage each other as we go now into your word. Cleanse us of sin, Lord. Forgive us of any sins that we may have done today so that we come with clean hands, clean heart, 
before your presence now. In your name we pray. Amen. We are in first, no, we're not in first, second Samuel 3. And there probably should be a little bit of review <coughs> that is necessary because uh, what you will discover a lot in biblical narrative and in just redemptive history in general is are two terms that you're familiar with, arcs and convergence. Arcs and convergence. Uh, even in TV shows you watch, you know, they have story arcs. Does that make sense to everybody? Like in Lost, they have an arc where the polar bear comes back or something like that, you know, or, or uh, where Hurley gets involved in something or the other. And there's this arc. There's a recurring story. There's a, there's a big picture plot that is occurring and it just reappears every certain amount of episodes. Well, you have that in 2 Samuel already. 2 Samuel has arcs already introduced in it. I can give you just two of them all immediately you know about. Remember the personal vendetta? Remember that? Everyone familiar with that? When, you know, Azahel gets speared through with the blunt end of the spear by Abner and then the entire army goes berserk particularly Joab and Abishai, remember that? And they say, Abner is a dead man. Personal vendetta, that's an arc. It, sometimes it disappears a little bit because now we're talking about unification and all these kinds of things and you don't see personal vendetta. You don't see the military come into the picture. Does this make sense to everybody? It's kind of gone off the radar, but then it's going to arc in. Does that make sense to everybody? Another arc would be unity. Unity, not just military personal vendetta, but also political unification. That's an immediate arc that we are dealing with right now. And both of those arcs are about to converge with the assassination of Abner. This is, these are some things you need to keep in mind. But there's other arcs too. What, how did 2 Samuel begin? That David was the right man for the job. Everyone remember that. He was tempted by the Amalekite. Take the kingdom. Take it through whatever means possible. And David says, I'm not going to do that. I am a man of integrity. I do value the office. I do understand what's going on. Amalekite, for your sin, you're dead. Everyone remember that. And David, being the personally the right man for the job, was critical in God's presentation of the Davidic covenant. Everyone with me on this? That's an arc too. And here, I'll just shed some light for you. Everyone knows when the Davidic dynasty starts to f collapse. David and who? Bathsheba. David was the right man for the job. Now, because he acted with integrity, now what happens with David and Bathsheba? David is now the wrong man for the job because of what? Of the fact he didn't act with integrity. Do you see that? Do you see the start of reversal? <clears throat> what you'll notice is that each one of these items, each one of these arcs that I'm talking about with you right now are going to be overturned, reversed. Joab works with Abner, or Joab works with David. David's in control of Joab. He can control the military. Then doesn't happen. Unity doesn't happen. And they actually go in the exact order of how they're presented. By chance? No. Because there's an intentionality to the narrative. Does that make sense to everybody? 
and you're like, I don't totally see that yet. It's okay, because we're not there yet. We won't be there for a long time. So don't worry about it. But just know, arcs are important, and where they converge are equally convert, important, and they're about to convert, converge here. God is trying to show at this moment in the narrative, David is the guy you need to go with. He's the clear indicator of the throne that is to meant to rule all thrones. His dynasty is the one that is intended to supplant all authority and powers, not only in Israel, but in the world. That's the guy you need to go on. And that is not just proclaimed to the nation of Israel. That is intended to be proclaimed to every single nation. Does that make sense to everybody? What we're looking for is an international recognition, not just a national recognition. Does that make sense? Um, this is an interesting fact, but in certain countries, for example, Iran, do you know that they have national, international voting monitoring that goes on? And if they think that you rigged the election, they're not going to recognize the guy that's voted for. Other nations. You see, international recognition is the same, is equally strong to national because if the world doesn't think President Obama is the President of the United States, are they going to recognize him when he comes to their nation? No, they're not going to care what he says. Does that make sense to everybody? You've got to have international and you've got to have national. That's God's strategy. He has to make it absolutely clear to everybody this is the man. And this is the man not only that God has chosen, this is the man that the destiny of the world falls upon. That's what's got to be clear. And that's what he's doing now. Military power. We've seen that. Political unification now. Our national unification. That's what we're looking at now. And already Abner, through a variety of circumstances, is putting everything at David's feet. Even the enemies of David want to be his friends. That's amazing. That's clear. But now what happens, which is a massive threat to unification and also fulfills the personal vendetta, is what? Abner is going to be what? Assassinated. That is what would hypothetically throw everything off balance. Uh, think about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. That was the same idea. Kill the, kill the president, and maybe we can continue the Civil War, or maybe we can destabilize the nation. Uh, a more recent example, uh, recent, Yitzhak Rabin. He was, a, he was one of the prime ministers in Israel when they brokered a peace deal. An Orthodox Jewish extremist assassinated him. Why? In hopes of destabilizing the entire peace process. And did it work? Yeah, that's why there's no peace. That's a reason why there's no peace in the Middle East right now. Because they had an ironclad deal worked out. I mean, a really good one. Well, good one in the sense that everyone liked it. Bad one in the sense that it wasn't even biblical. But they killed Yitzhak Rabin and it totally fell apart. And they can't get it, you know, it's like Humpty Dumpty. They can't put them back together again. So... <laughs> You kill one strategic guy, it's over. Do you see that? How that repeats itself in history. Well, here is the situation. And we start to read this in chapter 3, verse 22-ish. Servants of David and Joab come back from a raid, bringing much spoil. And this highlights that they, you know, Joab and his men are loyal to David. 
and Abner's not with David because Abner's already been sent away. He's gone in peace. That's key. Abner and David are friends. They are an alliance. Everything is peaceful. Peace, if everything's peaceful, that means everyone is inherently unified. Does that make sense to everybody? Everyone is inherently unified. What the narrator is emphasizing here is the notion that there is great unity, but it's all about to be broken. Joab, army, arrive. What do they say? What do they say? You know, Abner's left, and what does Joab say? What does Joab say? Because of what? Yeah, but what about, yeah, why did you make peace with that? Why does Joab think it's a bad idea? Because it's like David's being underhanded. Like, he's, he's, he, I mean, I'm, if I'm the general or something, and some, I don't know, some Iraqi president orders to hit on one of my younger Marines, then I'm going to get mad at him if he wants to do a deal with this guy that just made a hit on one of my guys. You're right, because you can't trust him. Right? Basically, you don't know. Right. You don't know who this guy is. Just stick bombs in our walls and then whenever we go to sleep. Yeah, I mean, this could be a Trojan horse. Right? Everyone know what I'm... You know, this guy, he's a military man. He understands. Oh, yeah. And that distorts everything, doesn't it, now? Do you start to see the arcs converge? Right? Here, you have personal vendetta. We'll call it PV for short, right? But you also have a problem militarily, and you also have a problem with unification. Because if Abner's such great buddy buddies with David, whose job's on the line? Of course his job's on the line. Because once the unit, you know, it's just like a company merger. Once the unification happens, what's Abner's new position probably going to be? General. General. Which means who's going to be replaced? Joab. Joab's not dumb. He knows what, what's going on. Okay. Personal vendetta, military unification. Okay. That's what's going on right now. So what does Joab say? What does Joab say? He's come to deceive you. And he's basically a what? A spy. Now, is Joab right or wrong? Really? He's emotional. He's emotional, that's true. Yeah. Is he right or wrong? He's wrong because everyone thinks that Abner's what? Loyal, right? He's very determined. He's very loyal. But why is he right? Because if if you read the narrative a different way and you say, remember what Abner? Okay, what pushed Abner out from under Ishbosheth in the first place? Anyone remember the specific event? Accused him of what? Slipping with the concubine. What was the significance of that? power. If you sleep with that concubine, you're claiming to be the next king. And what does Abner not say? I didn't do it. He just says, well, what's your problem? Right? I've been so loyal to you. What, what are you doing? 
Everyone with me? So, put this equation in your mind. Abner did sleep with the concubine. He tries to play it off, gets mad, departs. Does everything to put the kingdom under David, right? That's good. Everyone with me? But then what happens? What, what could he just as easily do, knowing his character? Once it's all under David, turn on David and get the kingdom for himself. So is Joab right? Is, this, is Abner a liability? Abner's of course a liability. Is Abner, even though he's making unity, is he an all, also an obstacle to unity? Of course he is. And that's the point that the narrator makes. Does the narrator have to put jo- Joab's words in here? Does he have to say this conversation? Could the text make sense? If, all, if this text is all about Abner's assassination, could he just kill Abner and then that be at the end of it? Does that make sense to everybody? Of course he could. But the narrator wants you to know this important information because the death of Abner must happen for national unification. Has to. If it doesn't happen, then the nation always will have a liability for unification. Let me put it this way. No one can serve two masters. You have now still a very charismatic personality named Abner versus an even more charismatic personality named David. Job's right. Even if Abner has the best of intentions, let's just assume he's, he's an upright, righteous man. I like to assume that because I'm named after the guy. So, <clears throat> but but let's, let's just assume for the sake of argument, is he still a threat? Of course he is because he's still a leader in charge. No matter what you look at this, no matter how you look at this, even if you want to paint him in the best light, he's still a threat. Does that make sense? You had a question? Yeah. Furthermore, on top of this, if I, I read some commentaries that you, you said the blunt end of the spear. Yeah. Uh, I didn't see blunt in there, but I did see the end of the spear. And at that time, uh, I read this one commentary. They said that they would stab the spear in the ground a lot, so they would have to sharpen the end of the butt of the spear. So I don't think Abner's necessarily innocent on that uh uh, on killing Joab's brother either on this one. I mean, Joab's looking at this and he knows that they, what they do to the blood and the spears. And so I, I think that, uh, that that was a murder that Abner took place in. Yeah, because you're saying that they probably sharpened the end of the spear? Is that right, what? just for combat's sake. I mean, why only utilize one end of a spear? Spear, right. Yeah, so. and the way that they sharpened it, though, it wasn't a pointy end because if you, rem- if you think about like a phalanx position that sometimes the Israelites would take, a proto-phalanx position. The problem with having a blunt end of the spear be sharp is what? When you go back and the people are behind you, either you're going to pierce their shield and get your spear stuck, which is going to put you at an immediate disadvantageous position, or you're going to impale the guy behind you. That wouldn't be very good either. The way that they would do it is they would have it sharpened, not as a, as a pointy end, like to jab somebody, but as a flat, like not round, but flat end to knock somebody down, to stun somebody, to knock them unconscious would be the idea, not to impale them. Um, and so that's where we get the argument where Joab is trying to knock Azahel unconscious. He's trying to knock the wind out of him. Normally, you knock the wind out so that after they're stunned, what do you do? You turn the spear, and then you nail them, 
Does that make sense? And the argument would probably be, well, he could just nail him as easily, just turn the spear around and, you know, bye-bye, shish kebab. But he doesn't want to do that because he knows he's in a lose-lose. He's trying to create the third way. Does that make sense? And so it's, it's still murder, and it's very heinous. That would increase the heinousness because, uh, or that's not really a word, but you know what I mean, the, hor- the horror of the event because you're not supposed to jab people with this end. You're supposed to knock them out with this end, and yet the spear goes through, and it's graphic. It's yucky. And so that's why everyone stays still. I think that interpretation does most justice to the nature of weaponry at the time. You can read Yigael Yadin's uh, Art of Biblical Warfare. That would actually be a great wiki article. Art of Biblical Warfare. Just talking about different weapons and stuff, having pictures and explanations. Uh, and of course you need to cite his book throughout and some other books too. But that, that's a very important topic in Second Samuel. And what you would do, since we're on the topic of wiki, here's how the links would work. The main article on 2 Samuel is like an overview of the entire book. Does that make sense to everybody? With like different events and all that kind of stuff. Whoever chooses to do that, that would count as two articles, by the way. And then once you hit, you know, Abner, you know, kills Azahel with spear. And then spear would be a link. Does this make sense to everybody? You click on that link and it would take you to biblical warfare article. Does that make sense to everybody? Do you see how the wiki kind of works? And of course, if you just searched war, then you would get that article as well. Does that make, are you with me on this? Do you see how this kind of thing works? You're like, hey, what? what is that all about? Click, boom, we're there. We got an article on this. So that's the design of the wiki, and hopefully that addresses your question a little bit. But yeah, the one end is Maybe blunt is not the right term. It is shaped. It is crafted for a specific purpose. Um, but it's not to pierce somebody through. And that's what we mean by blunt. Otherwise, it'd be counterproductive to the entire battle formations that were present at the time. Yeah. David's receiving the throne. Or, sorry. Um, if Abner were to turn on David, he received the throne. Would that be because he was the military commander or to be good? because of his relationship with the Both. Abner could say it this way. Here's, it's an easy situation. The kingdom's all turned over to David, but who convinced everybody? Abner. You guys like me now, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you got us David. David's a loser. David, guys, I thought David was with us. He's not. Right? I'm the rightful heir of Saul. You know that. I slept with the concubine. You know that. And you know I'm a great military leader, not like David. David just looks good, but I make David look good. So come with me. Boom. You have a massive rebellion on your hands. Guess who does that, by the way? Absalom. (laughs) It's not hard to convince people. Does that make sense? And Absalom's a little more clever than what I just said, but you get the picture. God knows exactly what to do. right? God knows exactly what to do to topple this guy. Abner is an asset because he's providing unification, but as long as Abner lives, Joab's comment is ironically true. You cannot have unity in the kingdom with two masters. With two charismatic personalities, you must only have one. (laughs) So Abner must be gotten rid of. But Abner 
per the narrative, is acting in a really honorable way, at least thus far. And his negative traits are played down. So what does the narrator show? He shows, yes, Abner must be taken away. That's the arc of unification. Does that make sense to everybody? For the sake of unity, Abner must be killed. Even though Abner is creating the unity, Abner also must be killed to provide the unity. Does this make sense to everybody? But then that arc is going to converge with what? Personal vendetta. Personal vendetta for who? Joab. Do you see how that works? Because Joab wants to kill Abner anyway. Not only because he's a threat to to national unity, but more importantly because what? He killed his brother. So Joab immediately seizes an opportunity, brings Abner back to Hebron, goes to speak with him privately, and kills him. Why is privately an important word in the text? Because David would never allow it because he would get personal gain out of it rather than see God's hand. Right. David has nothing to do with it. This is personally between Joab and Abner. See that? Do you also see a couple comments here? So, you know, Joab kills Abner. And he dies on the account of the blood of Azahel, his brother. Okay, a couple of things here to really think about and how the, ta- how the text actually crafts this entire event carefully. First, do you see why the timing of Abner's death is so important? Do you understand that? If Abner dies before, let's say the personal vendetta just took over and they killed Abner before chapter 3 ever occurred. They killed him in the battle. What would, what would have not happened? They, there's no unification, right? You have to, and what would happen if they killed Abner in the middle of the process of unification? It's not finished. See how this works? Abner's death has to occur perfectly. It has to occur after the unification finishes. Does that make sense? Then he has to get rid of it. He has to die. That's God's providence. If he had occurred any time earlier, this whole thing would have failed. It's perfect. Second, do you also understand that while Joab's words are true in an ironic sense, Joab's motivation to kill Abner is not for the sake of unification? Does that clear? Doesn't the text say that at the very end of verse 27? He kills him because of the blood of Azahel, his brother, because of the violent murder. Everyone with me on that? Why is that important? Because then the na- not only is David not guilty, but there is no clear intent to get rid of Abner for the sake of convenience. See how that works? There's no attempt There's no idea to get rid of Abner for the sake of convenience, which would what? Destabilize the entire nation. See how that works? That's very important. Yeah. Okay, let's say Joab didn't have a personal vendetta against Abner. He did it out of jealousy. He did it out of then duty because he knows we got to mix the nation together better. Abner's blocking that. I got to kill him. What is everyone going to think? Oh, so you use Abner to get this far, and then when he can't get you any farther, what do you do? Bump him off. We don't want you as king. Oh, no, we understand. Joab is mad about his brother. See that? 
And what doesn't enter their head is, oh, now we have to go under David. There's no other choice. See that? It automatically precludes certain thoughts because of the clarity of the personal vendetta arc converging with the unification arc. Does this make sense to everybody? Brilliant, huh? Yeah, that's God. And uh, third, there is one complication. You're like, what's the complication? Hebron, the city of Hebron. It's David's capital. We've already talked about Hebron versus Machanaim and all that kind of stuff. <coughs> but Hebron is a city of refuge. What does that mean? Anyone remember? Right. If you murdered somebody on accident, that's your safe place. City of refuge is your safe place. Remember that? It's the, it's, uh, the sanctuary, so to speak. And in Joshua 21, Hebron is listed as a city of refuge. So what is the problem? Abner is killed where? Where he's supposed to be safe. And this is a problem, and it's a plus. It's a problem because this whole thing was illegal, but why is that a plus? It shows that Joab is killing Abner, not for personal unification purposes, but why? Personal vendetta. And do you understand why now it says he took him aside into the middle of the gate and spoke with him privately? Because maybe what Joab is trying to do is say he's not in the city. He's in the gate of the city. So I can nail him. Right? I can get him... Because if you kill him outside, what is, he's, you're killing him in plain view. Right? You can't do that. And if you kill him inside the city, what are you doing? You know he's protected. Right? So you kill him in the middle of the gate. <laughs> and it's kind of like the happy compromise that does nothing because it's still illegal, but it makes it clear this is a matter of what? Personal vengeance. Not a matter of national gain. Does that make sense to everybody? Do you see how everything is pieced together, person, place, timing, everything, so that it's absolutely clear what's happening? Yes, sir. Yeah, why does he have to pay for it later? <laughs> I didn't say it was okay to kill Abner. For a variety of reasons. One, because I like the guy. But no, uh, more importantly, because this happened in battle. It's not, it, the, it's accidental in the sense that Abner wasn't intending to kill Azahel, but even if he did kill Azahel, that's what? That's a battle. You can't just get revenge for what happens in a battle. What it's talking about, you know, that's much different than you chopping a cherry tree. You know, they don't have really fig tree. And then, boom, your axe head flies off and nail somebody. That's a lot different situation, right? This is not the context of what happens in battle, right? The whole point of a battle, you know it when you go in, is you're going to fight and people are going to die. Um, and for that reason, Joab is unauthorized to get revenge on Abner, even though there is a personal vendetta. It's emotions there, and they're real, and they are what carry out the total demise of the nation under Saul. One more point, and you'll see it again. Okay? So, so far, got timing, got place, got <clears throat> uh, person, you know, all these kinds of things. But here, why was the personal vendetta so important? 
because we said military, when they're honing down on another objective, the problem that they're going to have is that they're going to lose what? Perseverance. Everyone remember that? They're going to lose perseverance. They're not going to be able to accomplish the mission because they just can't maintain the level to wear down the other opponent. Does that make sense to everybody? Who was propping up the house of Saul? What one person? Abner. And so now, the personal vendetta has been fulfilled. That means the military has done what? Mission accomplished. See that? And now they have effectively caused the entire collapse of the house of Saul. Do you see how that works? All within this one narrative, all within this one event. And you're saying, man, how would I even preach or teach this? Well, you could preach it like this. You know, what happens if you mess with the pastor? No, I, I, uh, no, you don't do that. Uh, <clears throat> you go slowly through the text. I've had to rush through it to show you this, but everything I've said is linked with some phrase in the text, right? Hebron, that's place. Privately, in the middle of the gate, that links you to uh, the issues of making it clear that this was out of personal vendetta. That in fact, that entire verse, verse 27, uh, helps you to understand that it's personal vendetta, not what's going on. And here's what you overall weave together is God's perfect plan to bring about the Davidic dynasty. He sets it up so that David is a man of integrity. He's the right man for the job. And yet, he is, God is going to radically and wisely bring together the nation through all these different ways. Does that make sense to everybody? That's how you could teach it. Okay, any questions for me? Yeah. With, well, okay, if Joab killing Abner was a personal vendetta, um, what would it, what, how would the murder of Abner have looked if it was a national attack on the house of Saul? Would it, would it, would it have appeared differently? Yeah. It would have been like the movies. You know? Would there have been a lot of film inside of Hebron? Not really. I mean, yeah, hypothetically, but it would have been doubly wrong because there would have been no reason for it. Because you would have said, There's not a, no one had a personal vendetta against this guy. He was a good guy. They must have got rid of him, what? Conspiracy. And then, boom, it's all over. You know, just like in the movies, you know, you have the assassin that comes in and he shoots the guy and no one knows why. Everyone likes the guy or whatever. And, but it was Jason Bourne that did it, you know, and so it's got to be, you know, because the CIA is paying off this other guy, you know. That's exactly what the Israelites would have thought. So just in context, essentially, it would have been different? Yeah. Because everyone would have said, oh, Joab killed him? Oh, you know why he did that. David has nothing to do with this. Oh, he dragged him back into the middle of the game. Oh, that is so... He's just trying to play, right? He's trying to make Abner think, oh, but I'm inside the city, so everything's going to be okie-dokie. I don't need my men to come with me. And, you know, and then, and then all, oh, he was, he was just trying to play him and kill him for the sake of his brother. Everyone knows that, uh-huh. Oh, yeah, Abner would be. And he's got men with him, right? So you would think, oh, I got an idea. Why don't I get my bodyguard to come with me? And if Joab wants to talk with me privately, I got my bodyguard with me, right? Joab says, come in the city. Come in the gate. So what does Abner do? Oh, I'm fine. 
he can't touch me. You know, and Joab might have done this. Inside city, outside city. Oh, stop right there. You know, I'm just being a little joking with that. But do you understand what I'm saying? Abner thought he was safe because he's in the gate. Joab thinks, no, you're in the middle of the gate. You're not in the city. You're outside the city. But I'm in the gate. No, you're not. And then he's dead. No. This is, this is an immediate tragedy. And that brings us to the next thing. Immediately afterwards, David hears about it. Verse 28. Then David hears. Uh, you know how he heard, right? Hebron's not that big of a city. Even though it's sizable. It's not humongous. What did he hear? Everybody screaming. And he looks out his window. Oh no. Oh no. You know, this, you know, that, that's exactly how David heard it. <laughs> Here, I'll draw it. What you would never learn in Sunday school, flannel graph. David looks out his window. Oy, you know, oy vey. Oh, you know, and here's the city gate right here. You know, out, in, middle, you know, purgatory. Uh, (laughs) And then, ah, what are we going to do? And here's Joab. Yeah, he's happy. You know, that, that's, that's the picture. And David's like, oh no. And immediately, David says something. But the reason I draw him here is because it makes no sense for him to say this in private. Does that make sense to everybody? It makes no, if he's just in his bedroom all by himself like, well, I and my kingdom are innocent. That, he's saying it to what? Implied. Everybody. Does that make sense to everybody? He's proclaiming it from the rooftop. I am not guilty of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, Hebron is not a big city. I walk around Hebron. Let me think. How long did it take me to walk around Hebron in Israel? One, two, three. You could walk around the place saying... The whole, you could walk around the entire city in, less, in about 30 minutes. And I can walk the diam like walk, that's walking circumference. Does that make sense? I can walk straight through from one extremity to another, probably like 10, 10 to 15. Does that make, so. And if he was yeah. And you, and you want, he's probably in a high location. Why? Because you need to have surveillance capabilities. Does that make sense to everybody? You're not going to like. Are the bad guys coming? You know, that, that doesn't, that's not going to happen. You're going to be high up to look out. Oh, of course David's going to hear. It's not hard. <clears throat> Even if David is at the furthest point away from the gate, or in the center point, he's only at most 10 to 15 minutes away, walking. So that, not driving, walking, right? So he can definitely hear everything you need to hear. Does that make sense to everybody? Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, he struck him in the belly because blow for blow. This is what you did to my brother. Once, see, we don't have time to go through all the details, but do you see every word here is screaming what? 
personal vendetta, personal vendetta, personal vendetta, personal vendetta. Every, you know, you know, if you're sniping him, you just shoot him in the head, you know, with an arrow, or you know, not like that. I mean, stab him through the heart or something like that. Does this make sense to everybody? You wouldn't do it. it you wouldn't replicate Azahel's murder unless it was what, for the sake of Azahel's murder. Yeah, speak to me. Um, let me double check because I don't, I don't recall that, but it could be. Yeah, clear, wouldn't it? So he struck. Okay, in the chumash. Say it again. Right. Um, and Amr struck him. Yep, same word, Chomesh. Yeah, so it's very clear. And it even says, Abner struck, or it's, it's even a, well, yeah, it's the similar wording. He st- strikes out his, the end of his spear to the stomach, and here Joab strikes out with the same wording, the sword to the stomach of, uh, uh, of Abner. Does that make sense? So it's like the same repeat thing. That's how you could draw it out that, yeah, this is totally personal vendetta. Great observation. Okay. All right. We got to continue and move a little faster. <clears throat> so that, that was Abner's death. He's dead now, finally. Uh, David hears it, and he immediately proclaims his innocence, and he condemns who? Joab. Who, who alone has the right to condemn somebody? The boss, the king. So once again, this kind, of sound, this kind of reminds you of what has been recurring. David, by not acting like a king, by being humble, actually becomes what? A king. Do you see how that works? This is another example of that. And the narrator affirms what David said. David's piety is exhibited in verses 31 through 35. Notice what happens. David tells Joab and all his men to put on sackcloth and ashes. Why is that important? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I would say earlier, uh, how do you pronounce it exactly? Shivai? Abishai? Abishai? Uh-huh. Abishai. So he was with them at the murder scene, and he already knew, first of all, that David, because of first Samuel, he already was there whenever David said, no, I won't kill, I won't kill Saul. So he already knew that David was going to go for it. But whenever he rips his clothes over here, uh, it makes it seem like David did this kind of in private or in a kind of council way. Because if these guys are ripping the clothes off with him or with the other mourners, then obviously, I mean... The, I mean, the tribe of Benny would be screaming out bloody murder right now. Like, get this guy. Are you kidding me? You're going to let him rip his clothes and mourn over the guy he killed? So, what, I mean, I think that whenever David pronounces this curse, this has to be in private. This can't be a public outcry because the, there's no way the, tri- the other tribe would settle for that. That's an excellent observation. And you, but here's why I think it's still public. Because verse 36. (coughs) 
And what Thomas has just told us is what should have happened. Does that make sense? Thomas has just, you've just told us what should have happened. That's what we should expect to happen. Does, did everyone hear his explanation? Does it totally make sense? Of course it makes sense. It's the right explanation. If David does this in public and he says, hey, this is kind of lame, right? But you're going to have to mourn with me even though you're the murderers and you're terrible and you got me into a mess. Does that make sense to everybody? You're going to have to mourn. And are people going to buy it? No, they shouldn't, right? Like, oh, oh, I'm so glad, Joab, you repented of killing, you know, my hero. You know, like, well, what? It's like, how can you just turn like that? Does that make sense? Of course it doesn't make sense. And I'll just jump the gun, and you can put this in context and overview. This should have totally destabilized. Everything David did here is, in some sense, irrational. Because no matter what you do, are you going to be able to unify the nation now? No. But what happens in verses 36 through 39? Everyone understands. And everyone likes who? David. And David's not even called David. Who is he called in verse 36? The king. Because now he's what? The king. Because he unified the entire nation even when it shouldn't have been unified. Does that make sense? David, at this moment, is invincible. Nothing can shake his grasp on the kingdom. Remember what Abner says to David, let me go out and convince all of Israel so that you can rule them to your heart's desire. Remember that? And I said, that means David basically can do whatever he wants and everyone's going to stand behind him. Is that, are Abner's words fulfilled here? Yes. Yeah. Sure. I think some of it was political. I think some of it was in, because of his integrity, too. Uh, let's not discount our pit one against the other. I think it's a both and. But that's just not going to work. <laughs> that's not going to fly. But somehow, somehow, God makes the u- nation unite around this guy even when they shouldn't even when it makes no sense for them to do that. Do you, see, do you see what we mean by national unity? It means David has such a grip on the nation. This is what all the other nations are going to see. They love this guy so much that even when it looks like, or it could look like, he's doing everything for his own political gain, he's a, he's a cheat, he's a steal, they still love him. Do you see the nature of national unity here? That's what makes this the right king. Saul never had that. He never had that even from the beginning. Most, some people thought he was a loser from the very beginning. Not David. Even when he acts kind of like a loser, and we'll talk about that, they still think he's the most wonderful thing since Abraham, you know, or something. Does that make sense? Are you with me on this? Does that help to address a little bit of what you're talking about? I, well, I still don't see how you would... I mean, I would still think it's in a private council. I just... I, because, of, because of what he does later to the next uh, murderous band 
in such in a private, I mean, public manner. I know that was a different situation in a lot of different contexts. But you don't let him keep in charge of your armies uh, if if he's going around doing this. I mean, I guess that would strike fear into the people's hearts. But um, I mean, for that only, I mean, I, I I picture kind of a center council where he comes in here and he says it's just to the elite in Hebron. Uh, they, but not to everybody. I mean, he already showed earlier in Samuel how he did a lot of things in private. Uh, so, I mean, why why take this out of house? Like like that, uh, tell it not in Goth. Like, hey, this isn't, nobody really might not know who was at the gate. Or you know what, maybe they might know who was at the gate because well, it's pretty obvious. Yeah, I mean, remember, what's at the gate? And, and those of you who have been to Ibex, you know this. All the public transactions and interactions are at the gate. This, the gate is a public place, even though there's private niches. There's no way you're going to get away from this. Um, all like, Remember with Ruth and Boaz? Boaz goes to the gate to make the transaction happen. Uh, even when strangers come into the land, Genesis 19 or Judges 19, they're all welcomed at the gate. Um, gates are... Gates are where major business happens. The elders are always gathered at the gate. Proverbs 30, um, or Proverbs 31, excuse me, the woman is praised where? At the gates. Why? Because that's where all the big big people gather to have transactions. This, this couldn't be held totally in private. Moreover, funerals are not held in private. You know, we have private funerals in our modern day. You know, it's a pretty solemn, pretty isolated kind of service, and, and that's good. But, uh, not by then. Yeah. Yeah, watchtowers at every major gate. Yeah. So, it's, there's no way you're going to be able to conceal this. But your whole tension that you're, you're thinking, because you're thinking logically here, yeah, that's the point. That's crazy. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't work. It has, and you want to have a different explanation, like, well, they must have concealed it somehow. They must have hidden it. Yeah, that, that's what logically should have happened for these outcomes to occur. But the text says differently, intentionally, because, because of the power of national unity around this one man. You and then you. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Right. No, and that's exactly, see, we skipped over 31 through 35, and to, because it was such a great opportunity to launch, latch onto the point. I think that is in David's mind. Okay, you did, we know why you did this. I don't like it, but you did it. We understand why, and we know it had nothing to do with me. Now you got to show. Right, that's in 31 to 35. That's the act of integrity. That's what's going to show what David's heart is. But the question is, are, is everyone going to buy it? And that's a different question that links to a bigger picture issue. Does that make sense? So what you're saying is true, particularly if you focus on 31 through 35. But that's going to provoke 36 through 37, which accomplishes a bigger picture. Does that make sense to everybody, what's going on here? Yes? Verse 31. Uh, that's that's where they 
kind of lift the guy. A bier, that's where they, uh, the dead body is placed on the bier and they parade it around. Yeah, it's kind of like in Lord of the Rings, you know, when, uh, when they're, well, you got the tombs of the kings and they're like, you know, marching with the, the king on the tomb and they're putting it in front. And, and unfortunately, um, remember during that final battle at Minas Tirith and the, and the crazy guy, Lord Denethar, is about to burn his son, Faramir, remember that? That's a bier as well. That's another form of it. Uh, that, that's a bad one, okay? But, yeah, uh-huh. Uh, I'm trying to like, get in the mind of Joab. Yeah. Does he, is he surprised by David's reaction? We don't know. And I want to emphasize we don't know because later on he shows something. So right now the text would have you believe that he's okay. Does that make sense? He's not insubordinate relative to David. Does that make sense? But later, because of things, you're going to see a difference. So it's good to get in the mind of Joab and let the text say, hey, but you don't know the mind of Joab yet until I show you now for certain reasons why it's there. And it has everything to do with something I'm about to talk to you about in like a minute. Uh-huh. Where is Abishai in Abner's murder? Presumably with Joab. Presumably with Joab. Because <coughs> notice that in verse 30, it links Joab and Abishai, his brother killed. So Joab is probably the main guy responsible because he's the, I don't know if you want to say he's the older brother, but he's the head guy at bare minimum. And that, but Abishai was complicit you know, in the whole act. Very good question. More questions? Yeah. Oh, it would have been humiliating. It would have been humiliating. And that's kind of the point. Yeah. Yeah, it could have been. But see, the question, once again, like uh, the other gentleman was asking me, was, you know, Lancer, right? Is that is that how you go by, though? Yeah. Okay, okay. So... Um, what Lancer was asking was well it was the right thing to do but the question still is verse 36 and following will people buy it is that enough right and that's what Thomas is asking that's not enough you gotta kill this guy right that's not enough and here's where what should David have done he should have killed the guy He's a murderer. Does that make sense? Even though you understand and everything, and this building's about to collapse, you know the, uh, you know the guy is a murderer. So you got to kill him, but he doesn't. And and here's the deal: I'm not trying to defend David's actions. Does this make sense to everybody? I'm not trying to say, "Ooh, look at David. You know, he's such a great leader." I'm trying to say, even if he isn't a great leader, people still like this guy to the point where they're not going to break rank with him. That's crazy. Compare with Obama, right? Obama makes a couple of mistakes early on in office, and people still go, oh, you know, all about Obama. Now, it's like anything he says, everyone just rips on him. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. I mean, we should still show respect to our leaders. This makes sense to everybody. But on the other hand, if you did something as unpopular as that, you can be, you're asking for everyone to break rank with you. Does this make sense? But they don't. Why? 
because he's the real king. It's so clear. It's so obvious to everyone now what it means for Israel to have a king. Someone so charismatic, so powerful, so much gravitational pull that no matter what he does, who he is, what he says, it's irrelevant. They love him. Um, you know, who has had that? Jesus, first coming, even, right? That's why the Pharisees get immediately intimidated by him. Don't you realize he's going to draw all Israel to himself? And then what, what's going to happen? There's going to be an res- insurrection, John chapter 10, and then we'll lose our kingdom. We can't let that happen now, can we? So we have to kill him, which actually fulfills everything. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> there's another irony that we could talk about later. Does this make sense to everybody? So let's backtrack, because basically what we've done is we've introduced the problem, David hearing. We ditched his solution, because I wanted to jump the gun a little bit. And then we got here and talked about the effect, which is unity. Does that make sense? But let's talk about this, the middle part, verses 31 through 35, just, for, just to be complete and also to get you a feel of what's going on. David does humiliate Joab. David does. <clears throat> Once again, is it enough? Not really, but it, it's, it's big. He humiliates Joab and all his men, takes away all the kind of sweet feeling of revenge, so to speak, and you have to mourn. And so he makes all of them mourn. And um, David sings a lament for Abner to demonstrate his sorrow. And there are three arcs that now merge into verses 31 through 35. Okay, three arcs. What have I said thus far? What have I said thus far about what proves David to be the right person for the job. One, because he is the right person. Remember that? That was in the early section. And then I said, military. He has uh, all these military successes. That also proves to him, right? And then the third one, which is one we're in right now, is what? Unity. You see all three arcs merging here. Let me show you. David says to Joab, tear your clothes. And even though it's so humbling and humiliating, David has military control, doesn't he? He controls his military. King David walked behind the bier and he weeps. A genuine display, presumably, of his sorrow. Does that make sense to everybody? So he's the right guy for the job. Do you see that? Two things. What's the final one? National unity, right? Then all the people came to what? Persuade David to eat. Everyone is unified around who? David. David, don't take this so hard on yourself. And you're thinking, you know, you know, Thomas here is going to be screaming, what are you talking about? He should have taken it harder. Amen. He should have. But the people don't think so. Right? The people don't think so. They think he's done quite enough because there's national unity surrounding one person. Do you see how that all works? All arcs converge here, and that's why really for the first time, or the first major time, David is called King David. Does that make sense? Because now he's got all things in play. For a king to rule, 
And for the throne to be so clearly established, three things must be in place. Three critical elements. You must have the right man to rule. You must have him be a conquering hero. And you must, and you must, have the entire nation surrounding him or unified around him. Does this make sense to everybody? Those are the three things. If you want the true king to be fully established in the land. Uh, And there's much more I could say about that, but I don't have time. Any questions about this? By the way, do you see that happen in the end times with Jesus? Yes. The nation mourns over him like they lost their firstborn. They unify around him. He comes in and he conquers all of the enemies. So he's, you know, military conquest, that would be good. And then what? He's definitely the right guy for the job. And the kingdom belongs to the Lord. Does this make sense to everybody? It all clicks. Okay, good. Any questions? Let's talk about your SPP. We have like 20 minutes left, right? We get out at 35? Ah, just enough time. One moment, I didn't think we were going to make it. SPP, which you can upload, by the way, into slot number three, I think it is. Okay? So just upload whatever you did, whether you did number three or whether you did number four. Does that make sense? You just upload it into that one. And by the way, I don't know if you guys realize this. Maybe some of you do, but um, you know on Masternet... They have all these different things where you can upload to, and after it's due, it just disappears. You know what I mean? There's a view all assignments link right underneath. And if you click on that, then you see all the assignments, and you can upload it. Does that make sense? That's all you have to do. So I know some of you are like, oh, I don't see it anymore. What am I going to do? Just click. It's going to be okay. All right, and all of my all of my assignments aren't closed. Some people, you know, they're, they're they lock you out because they don't want you to turn it in late because they're going to give you a zero. I might give you a zero anyway, but at least I know you turned it in and tried. Uh, you know, uh, so just click on the link. Click on the link and upload. No, I won't give you a zero. Don't worry. I'm a nice guy. I like to be gracious. <coughs> but here we are. What did they, what did you guys find out for SPP number four? That's the. What's the, back, what's the background of 2 Samuel 4? What passage did it allude to? Anyone know? Huh? Genesis 9, in what sense? The law. The law, okay, could be. But that's not as clear because any kind of implementation of law would allude back to Genesis 9 in that sense. Uh-huh. Deuteronomy 21. Yeah. Who did you read to figure that one out? Um, Young blood. Yes, yes. He's one of the. He's in the Expositor's Bible Commentary. That's a good one to check out, by the way. EBC for short. You know. <coughs> EBC for short. Expositor's Bible Commentary. That's. Anyone else find a, an allusion there? The same allusion in a different commentary. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, Worsby's commentary would have it. Yep. Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. What does it say? What does that verse talk about? Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. Anyone else find it in their commentaries? Yeah, which one did you use? Version. 
Bergen, yes, in the NAC series. Yep, he would have it too. So NAC, Wearsby. Yeah, Wearsby's fun because he, uh, he has the B series, you know what I mean? Like be, be good, you know, be, be sanctified and all this kind of stuff. And uh, Steve Lawson once said in a class, he said, his book on Psalms should be Be Psalms or something. And it was really funny at the time. But anyway, uh, these three, yep, they have it. Anyone else have it that you checked out? How many of you didn't find that? That's okay. It's not like you're in sin, okay? It's just, you just know some people aren't as thorough as others for a variety of reasons. Okay, for a variety of reasons. What does Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23 say? Anyone know? You could read it. I'm not asking you to rattle off the top of your head. <clears throat> and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for inheritance. So if you execute a criminal and hang him on a tree, make sure to bury him, because he is what? Cursed is the one who... Hangs on a tree. You've heard this before, yes? It's used by Paul in Galatians. Okay. Um, this is a really important passage for a variety of reasons. And here's... Anyone know why... Okay. Does the narrator of 2 Samuel have to tell you the gruesome details about how these guys were hung or impaled? Does he have to do that? Or could he just say, they struck him, they died, kind of like the Amalekite, and we don't know what happened. We don't really know what they did. Could, could he have just omitted all the details? Of course he could have. So why does he mention it? What's the point overall? Of course they are, I agree. And I'm trying to illustrate why they are, but what, are the, what is the importance? What's the, what's the link? Think about what Deuteronomy 21 says. Link it with this text. Because the sin they committed was worthy of death and they killed a righteous man. Okay, they did kill a righteous man. Good, there's a connection there. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's a, he's a law implementer, right? Which means he's a king. So we know that. Law implementer, king. That's one, that's one good implication here. What else? I feel, I feel like I'm playing, a, what's that game? Wheel of Fortune, you know? Or Family Feud, I'm just, ding, you know, vote says this. But there's another important one. Well, that's a sin that might be worthy of death. I know, but like, does that apply to Christ hanging on the tree? Like, I mean, yeah, you know, that's a, that, yeah, you're on to something here. Yeah, how did, the, how did these all tie together, right? All, how did they all hang together? We'll talk about that, maybe, you know, if we have time. Uh-huh. Defilement. Defilement, yeah, we're closer. Defilement of the land? Well, the land's okie-dokie here. 
It won't be okie dokie later on, but it's okay here. It's okay, you can play 20 questions with me, it's fine. I don't mind it, it's good. It gets you thinking. Yeah? Uh huh. Yeah, curse. That's big. What's the narrator's point? What's the narrator's point? Look at how the line of Saul ends up. They are what? Cursed. You're like, what does that mean? Rejected by God. God has completely abandoned them. God has designated them so clearly that they are despised by him and they are not the way to go. Like I said here, in the outline, the dramatic outcome, right? You see that in the upper right, upper left-hand corner? The dramatic outcome. The dramatic outcome proves that this line, the line of Saul, the house of Saul, the Saulite dynasty, no, it's cursed. If Let's put it this way. <clears throat> Providentially, God has showed, David has a greater military. David can unify people like Saul couldn't. David is the right person, even though Saul was the wrong person. But if you didn't get all of that, this will communicate, won't it? When you got a guy hanging from a pole, and he's the guy that everyone knows is going to be the inheritor of the Saulite dynasty, and you're just looking at him and thinking, I don't want to end up on a pole. Then don't go with who? Saul. Does that make sense to everybody? That would probably communicate. Pull. The impaling process, remember how I play impale man all the time, remember that? Why do I do that? Because the word for hang is probably the word for impale. Uh, it's very hard to hang somebody without their head, yet it can happen in, in uh, Genesis. You know, like, remember the baker? He's got the bread, and then they said, Joseph says, hey, that means he's going to take your head off of you. So, the, so Pharaoh cuts off his head and hangs him. Well, do you see a problem? <laughs> I mean, don't see it as, as much as you can, but do you, do you understand the problem with that? You cannot hang a headless person the normal way that we do in the, you know, the wild, wild west or whatever. Can't, you can't send somebody to the gallows without their head, but you can't impale them. You're like, ew, that's gross, that's terrible. Exactly. That's why it communicates that this person is under divine what? Curse. He's under divine hatred. The punishment fits the crime and the sentencing. <clears throat> this is the line of Saul. God has now decreed, and he is decreeing in this text, that these people are cursed. They're not the right line. Okay? Why? Not only because they have done something worthy of death, i.e. killed a righteous man, and we'll talk about that. It's indicative of a bigger picture. This is a line that all they can do is disobey God. It, they can't live up to his standards, and so he curses them. He rejects them, as opposed to David. Does this make sense to everybody? Do you understand how graphically this would communicate to Israel? This is why you have to go with David not Saul. Does that make sense to everybody? And there is this question, well, how does this connect with Jesus? I mean, the whole ver that verse is used with Jesus. What, what happened here? 
Um, I'll talk more about it when we get to 2 Samuel 7, but let me give you one sneak peek because it'll help just to get your mind turning around things. It has to, we have to go back a little bit to second, the beginning part of 2 Samuel 4, verses 1 through 4. Okay, everyone glance over that part. Everyone see it? And each, when Abner dies, remember, and I'll try to finish my thought here. When Abner dies, remember one effect that I said it was? It was the fulfillment of the personal vendetta. Remember that? That arc, the military arc, remember that? What was the military arc trying to do? It was trying to drive the Saulite dynasty into the ground. Remember that? And the personal vendetta was the energy, the motivation they needed to fulfill, to persevere through that task. And I said, mission accomplished, because now you've wiped out the most important pillar in the Saulite house. Who was who? Abner. Right? Everyone remembers this. This is illustrated in the first verse of 2 Samuel 4. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all Israel was dismayed. Mission accomplished. The Saulite house is now completely destabilized. Does this make sense to everybody? His death makes the unification around David completely possible, but also it's the death blow to the house of Saul. This is a national crisis, and verses 2 and 3 show you one option to solve this crisis, and verse 4 shows you the other option. In verses 2 and 3, you have these military commanders named Rechev and Ba'ana. Everyone see them. They're known for strength. They've got some good raids and some good offensives under their belt. Versus who in verse 4? Who's the other alternative? Jonathan's son named who? Mephibosheth, who's what? He's crippled. He's lame. So you have lame man versus two military commanders. Who's going to win? Take a guess. Military, right? Of course. The crisis in the Saulite house is who is going to take over for Saul's dynasty? Does that make sense? Are you going to have Mr. Lame Man take over? Or are you going to have what? The military commanders. The military commanders act on behalf of the entire nation and on behalf of the entire house of Saul. They represent in this way the house of Saul. Do you follow me? Do you see, what, do you see how the situation is pitched now? Do you understand also when I said when they end up cursed, it's sending a signal about the entire line of Saul, the entire reign and kingdom of Saul. Does this make sense to everybody? Because if they're the next official representatives of the Saulite house, then if they're cursed, who's also cursed? The entire line, right? Does that make sense? Are you with me? Does this make sense? I know, I mean, we've got five minutes left and I know it's hard to keep attention and keep your mind going. You've done really well today. So, walk with me, okay? Walk with me. There will be a reason why Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23 is linked with Jesus. There will be a reason. It's in 2 Samuel. I don't want to give it away totally yet. But do you see how this works? In 2 Samuel 4, two guys who, pos who are positioned by the narrator to be representing the entire line of Saul are cursed. Therefore, we read that to mean that the entire line of Saul is cursed. 
so that it is evidently clear you don't want to end up in their demise. You want to choose who? David. Does this make sense? Do you see the logic here? And I can flesh it out more, but do you at least in verses 1 through 4 see how these guys are being positioned as the next two big men for the job? Does that make sense to everybody? Good. Now go to Jesus, who's placed on a tree and cursed. Yes? Why? You kind of already know because of sin and stuff, but how that all ties together, we'll show you when we get to 2 Samuel. Here's our Lord through the cross, cursed for what? Us. So our curse becomes his curse, and his curse is our curse. Does that make sense to everybody? And because before God, he cursed him, it's as if he poured it out on all of us, and so the blessings he have also become what? Ours. So before God, your punishment is paid. Why? Because he did pay it. Per the logic that this works too. Does this make sense to everybody? Does this, do you start to begin to see how this text is being applied in circumstances? Is it personal? Did somebody sin, quote-unquote? Yes! But it has effects in the legal situation that it's found in. Does this make sense to everybody? How Jesus and how the line of David could become so much like the line of Saul that they end up almost in a similar position, cursed, I'll get to when we get to 2 Samuel 7. But, like I said, God is slowly paving the way. And the first thing he needs to make you understand is, if you end up with Saul, you're under curse. You must side with David. Does this make sense to everybody? Let me make some more comments here, and then we can close out the class. Uh, the curse against Saul. These two military commanders have done a lot of things wrong. Every, every detail about what they did it shows the heinous nature of their crime. Look at the timing. They do it when the day is what? Look at verse 5. What is it? When the heat of the day. Why? Because they know, unlike nowadays, but what happens when it's really hot? You want to you sleep, right? So they, they plan out the timing. They plan out the place. They know it's in the, he's going to be lying down in his bedroom. Right? They plan out how they're going to disguise it. They go into the middle of his house as if they're taking what? Wheat. Just something so innocent. Everything is premeditated here. And then what do they do? They strike him in the belly and then run. Everyone see that? But in verse 7, what happens? Now when they come into the house, as he was lying on the bed, they struck him and killed him and beheaded him and took his head. What's weird about this? They went, what does verse 6 say? They, they went into the house. So I'll draw it for you. So here's these two dudes and they go into the house and inside the house, you know, Z, 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 you know. And then what did they do? you know, kill the guy, right? And then they run. You know, they fly. And then what happens? According to the next verse, they go back in. And then what do they do? Maybe he's not dead. So, repeat. And what? Be, you know, slice off his head. Does that make any sense? 
No. Do they want to do? Do they want the head as proof to David what they've done? Surely, surely. They're like, oh no, we forgot something. You know, <laughs> wait, we gotta lop off the guy's head. No, that's not what's going on. Because that would be completely irrational. If it's so premeditated, do you think they're going to make a mistake at the last minute? And they're trained military men. you think they're going to just forget the most important item? What is this? What is this like? What is this like? If you're, you're having an OT survey, you can't cheat. Or OT survey one, if you've already had me. What is this like? What are you in sports, on, a, on the television, that is, not in real life? Replay. Instant replay. Why do they do instant replays in sports? Either because it's completely controversial or what? Really glorious or something, right? Oh, let's see that catch again. Oh, yeah, that's so good. Well, this is so terrible. The author says, hey, let's not only instant replay it, notice there are more details given in the next verse. Why? Because it's so bad. It's on slow-mo. Does that make sense to everybody? The narrator tells it twice because it's so bad. Does that make sense to everybody? Do you also start to see the connection with Deuteronomy 21? If a man commits a sin that is so heinous it's worthy of death, what's the author trying to tell you here? They did it. They did it. Does that make sense? It's so bad, I have to tell you it in slow-mo because it's so amazingly incredible and disturbing what they did. They killed a man premeditated at the, at the time when he felt most secure while he was sleeping on his bed in total disguise and they had an escape route planned. Everything was, everything was thought out beforehand and was executed with cold precision. And then we'll see how David deals and we will get through five and six maybe next time. Uh, I'll email you if you do.